of the Sunday morning to you. This is a special weekend edition of Offbeat Oregon History. We're working our little heads off this week to bring you part three of our new five-part series on the 1980s Rajneesh Puram story out of Wasco County. Look for part four tomorrow. That'll be a Monday, so it won't be all that special, but it'll be special to us because never really done this model before. But anyway, um, thanks for downloading. I do hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on August 1st, 2023, under the headline, Rajneesh's Doom Sealed by Scheme to Seize Power. It is, like I said, part three of a five-part story telling the absolutely bonkers and widely misunderstood story of Rajneesh Puram, the commune founded by Indian guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and, uh, well driven into the weeds by him and people working for him in the early 1980s. Here we go. Part 3. Occupation In the courtyard at the Antelope Post Office today, there stands a large bronze plaque attached to the base of a flagpole. It reads, Dedicated to those of this community who, throughout the Rajneesh invasion and occupation of 1981-85, remained, resisted, and remembered. Most visitors probably roll their eyes at this, thinking it a bit melodramatic. Invasion? Occupation? Police, they might mutter. But the Rajneeshi takeover of Antelope was not an anodyne bureaucratic exercise, and it was definitely an unfriendly move. To those who lived through it, it really did feel like a foreign military power had rolled into their town and occupied it and strutted around on its streets wearing uniforms. It started out, actually, very stealthily. Several properties in the town were up for sale, and suddenly there were offers on all of them. Very ordinary people, not in the Rajneeshi uniform of red clothing, signed the documents and took possession, and then some more very ordinary-looking, totally not Rajneeshi people moved into the properties. Quite a few of them, actually. The population of the town nearly doubled. Double was about what they were going to need, because they lived there in Antelope, keeping to themselves as much as possible until just before election season, when several of them filed for election as city officials under their Hindi names. And then the truth came out. The new residents were Rajneeshis, and they were out to take over the town. At the same time, the Rajneeshi leaders launched a concerted campaign to get other Antelope residents to leave town. They tried to buy people's houses, and those who would not sell were relentlessly harassed. Red-clad photographers with ostentatious cameras parked outside their houses, photographing them when they came and went, photographing their children when they left for school, following them around, staring whenever they could catch their eyes. Camera film is expensive, so most of these cameras that were clicking and buzzing away were probably empty. But it had to be pretty disconcerting, which, of course, was the purpose. The Antelope residents scrambled to try and head off the invasion. They called an emergency meeting and set up a vote to disincorporate the town. No incorporation, nothing to fight over, right? But the Rajneeshis got word of it and made sure to vote in the ensuing election, and there was only so much resistance the few dozen voters of Antelope could put up. 
The vote was defeated, and that November so were the incumbent mayor and city officials of Antelope, Oregon. The victorious Rajneeshis promptly renamed the town City of Rajneesh and got busy approving variances and building permits. Now, by this time, nearly all executive decisions were being made by Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh's personal secretary, the ever-bellicose Ma'anand Sheila, a.k.a. Sheila Patel-Silverman. Rajneesh himself had entered a period of silence, as he put it, and was speaking only to her and a few other Rajneeshi leaders. Now those leaders, having tasted this cup of power, decided to expand their power base by taking over all of Wasco County using the same playbook that had worked so well in Antelope. This was going to be trickier, though. Wasco County had about 21,000 non-Saniassan residents, roughly 12,000 of whom were registered to vote. It's one thing to take over a town of 40. It's another to occupy a town, or a county, rather, of 21,000. At least half of those voters, probably more, could probably be counted on to actively oppose a takeover. But Sheila had a plan for that, a plan called the Share a Home Program. The Share a Home Program was launched in 1984, and implementing it cost the Rajneeshis about $1 million and also their entire project. But we'll get to that in a minute. But here's the way it worked. Saniassans fanned out across the country driving chartered buses, recruiting homeless people to come to Rajneeshpuram to live and, of course, to vote. Free food, free shelter, free clothing, even if it was all red. You know, this was a compelling idea for anyone shivering under a railroad bridge in Seattle or Boston or Oakland. Thousands took them up on it. As primary season approached in 1984, the population of the twin cities of Rajneeshpuram and Rajneesh, Antelope that is, swelled to over 7,000. Each newcomer to the commune was promptly registered as a Wasco County voter. Now, like I said, this was probably the point at which the Rajneeshis definitively lost the fight to stay in Oregon. Because, well... Look, right, it's one thing to have a bunch of far-out mystics developing a piece of Oregon's outback. Nobody really minded that. Rumors that it was a sex cult were titillating, of course, and possibly even true. But Oregonians had cheerfully tolerated far more egregious groups. The takeover of Antelope had been bad, but the whole thing was easily understood as the commune's only option for having a municipality. And anyway, Antelope was a tiny place. The nastiness of the campaign to drive the locals out was a public relations disaster, as was an attempt that happened subsequently to force local farm kids to attend Rajneeshi schools so that they could be, you know, indoctrinated in enlightenment or whatever. But these weren't the kinds of missteps that can't be recovered from with a little, you know, a quick course correction and a little public relations balm after person sees the way the wind is blowing. But... When Sheila and her operatives started scheming to seize power at the, at the county level, disenfranchising thousands of Wasco County residents and doing so in such a transparent and ins intelligence-insulting way, obviously thinking their plan was too clever and subtle for the local rubes to catch on to, at that point they lost any claim they might have had on the moral high ground. And from that point on, the story of Rajneeshpuram would be a series of increasingly desperate and petulant rearguard actions and acts of open spitefulness that quickly escalated to crime. 
The state's response to the Share-A-Home program was a fairly obvious one. You would have thought that someone like Sheila would have seen coming, but apparently she didn't think anyone was smart enough to think of it. Secretary of State Norma Paula simply stopped all voter registration in Wasco County and assigned a fleet of attorneys from her staff to travel to the county and interview each and every new registrant to make sure that person actually intended to live in the county. Well... This, as far as the takeover plan was concerned, was checkmate. But Sheila and her lieutenants tried to play through it. If they couldn't pack the voter rolls to achieve a winning majority, well, maybe they could depress voter turnout enough to win. And so it was that in the summer of 1984, Sheila and her cronies, most notably Ma'anan Puja, a.k.a. Diane Omeng, the director of the commune's medical service, started poisoning people testing formulas and seeing what might work. First, they poisoned two Wasco County commissioners with cultured bacteria stirred into glasses of water offered to them while they were on a visit to the site. What an odd coincidence they must have thought it when they both got deathly ill with salmonella right after someone gave them water (laughs) at Rajneeshpuram, a place full of people who seemed to hate them. Well, after that, Sheila and Pooja led a team into the Dalles to dribble cultured salmonella bacteria on the salad bars in several restaurants near the freeway. And that was the big one. That was where they put up their big numbers. Hundreds of people got sick, possibly even thousands. The official count is about 750, but likely there were many more minor cases involving people who didn't bother to seek medical attention. It was, in remains, the biggest biological warfare attack in U.S. history. And the attack is baffling, still baffling today, because it was carried out a month and a half before the elections. Was it supposed to be a trial run to test the poisons in advance to make sure they would be effective? I mean, if so, it was a really stupid move because it put Wasco County on notice. The salad bars were shut down. People became very serious about disease vectors and hand washing and other hygienic preventions they would be a far, far harder target on election day. Or was it supposed to actually kill people, thereby removing them from the voter rolls? If so, it was even stupider. Either way, it was just absolutely not a 4D chess move. Nobody was going to take home a Genius of the Year medal for that one. And at the time, nobody really knew the source of the food poisoning, but the timing was very suspicious, especially given the county commissioners who had gotten deathly ill with the same thing just after visiting the commune. Almost everyone suspected the Rajneeshis, and that was enough to put the stink of criminality on the whole commune. All of them, not just Sheila and her gang, who frankly deserved the stink of criminality at this point. But this was a bigger deal than it has been made out to be later on rank-and-file Rajneeshis were not the kind of nasty monsters that some of their leaders were turning out to be. These were mostly good-hearted, normal, generally very young people who had found a new vision for life under the charismatic leadership of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. They were there to bask in his wisdom. They were there to dissolve themselves into his movement. They were there to seek enlightenment and be a part of something that was creating, as they saw it, good things in the world. Good things like poisoning people and stockpiling and brandishing automatic weapons and scaring the hell out of locals and ghosting ex-members and harassing former Antelope residents with cameras. Right? Those kinds of good things. No, these were very off-brand actions for the average Sanyasin. But more and more, they were coming to characterize life in Rajneeshpuram. People were afraid to go into Madras to shop in their red clothes because the battle lines had been drawn and they were part of them. 
A creeping demoralization started percolating into the ranks of the Saniassans, a sort of bunker mentality, too, a sense similar to that of a people at war. But remember, these were people who had sold everything and given everything to the Bhagwan to start a new life there in Rajneeshpuram. This was their home now. They had burned their boats. They had little choice other than to hunker down and hope for the best. What they would get was far from the best, and we'll talk about that in the next section of this, the next and final installment of the audio version, because I'm going to lump parts four and five together into one. And that will be coming at you first thing Monday morning. Key sources throughout this story include works by Eric Kane, Nadine Jelsing, Corey Fry, and Les Seitz. And I should also probably mention Bill London of radio station KPNW in Eugene, um, who actually visited Rajneesh Puram at the very end when it had been shut down and they were having a giant yard sale. Maybe I'll append a little bit of info about that to the, to the Monday edition. Because it was a remarkable experience, and I'm very jealous of Bill for having had the opportunity to do that. He actually gave an ex-Saniassan a ride out of the ranch. A guy with a master's degree in philosophy from a California university who was um, devastated. Anyway, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to get the full citations and visuals that go with today's show. If that last phrase was a little bit weird sounding, it's because I went off axis on my mic, but at this point I've been in this booth for so long and I'm so hot and sweaty that I'm just not going to re-record it, so... <laughs> It's just the outro anyway. Nobody listens to the outro. Uh, yeah, so this podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, for details of which you can navigate your way to or surf on over, as the kids nowadays say, to offbeatorgan.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. It's off their album, uh, Strong Shoulders, which is a baller album. It's really good. Anyway, Offbeat Oregon History episodes come out once per weekday, usually around 6 a.m. Of course, this one is coming out on a Sunday, so it's kind of special. But in any case, it will not be long. It'll be less long this week than it usually is until the next episode is on your device and ready for you to queue up. And until it is, please make sure you fill up the rest of this day with some good stuff, okay? Bye now. Bye now.